Hello and welcome to another episode of the Apex Law Podcast. I'm Alexander Theo Harris. And I'm Peter Smith. And today we're going to be discussing recession-proofing your business and other wealth management strategies with a special guest. Before we launch right into that, though, I do want to note that while Peter and I are attorneys, we're not your attorneys. If you do need legal counsel, be sure to find a competent attorney in your jurisdiction. Peter, can you introduce our guest? Absolutely. I am happy to introduce... Dan Nicholson from Nth Degree CPAs. He's the founder of Nth Degree CPAs. He's been doing this for, boy, almost 10 years, eight to 10 years. And what I love about Dan and his firm is that, yes, they are CPAs. But what I really know him for is a lot more about their consulting sort of CFO level advice and counsel and the great work they do, sort of do in, in that field. And Dan is here with us today to talk about um, a couple of his financial principles and some recession proofing tips. Welcome, Dan. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I think what's most interesting in our conversations is you've, you have a really good foundation with which you use to, to build on top of for your clients and in your audience. So I think we should start there. So what, what are the, the sort of foundational principles that you work with with your clients? Foundational financial principles. Yeah, so I think the essential question that most people are asking themselves, whether they're a business owner or not, is, frankly, am I going to be okay? And underneath that, it, it's basically, am I going to run out of money at some point? And I see that with people who are, you know, say, young and maybe just getting out of college and also the folks who are on paper very wealthy, they're still concerned with ultimately, am I going to be okay? Am I I at some point going to have something catastrophic that happens? And so there's this, this cool equation, and I wish I came up with it, but that says that anxiety equals uncertainty times powerlessness. And so I think it's the, the uh, distributive property going back to like third grade math. I think then you could go financial anxiety equals financial uncertainty times financial powerlessness. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of like, am I going to be okay? Essential question that people are asking themselves. I think you can sort of bubble it down into this like, well, that's financial anxiety. And then based off that equation, really what we're trying to help people solve is addressing their financial uncertainty as well as the sense of lack of power that they might feel that they have over their finances. So that's sort of like the kind of macro level principle or thought exercise that I start with. And so then you go, how do I get uncertainty to zero? Well, we probably can't get it completely to zero because there's things that are outside of our control, you know, economy, what competitors are going to do, natural disasters, our health, yeah, all this sort of stuff. So we can never get uncertainty completely to zero, but what are the things we can do to get it as close to that as possible? And then... And so there's some tools and tricks that you can do there. But then the other side, the sort of financial power, that's almost more of a state of being to some extent. And so that's where I think principles can really uh, step in to help people have a a better sense of of, uh, power over their finances. And, And the reason why I say that is that I think that we're wired to sort of go for a variety of reasons, which I could wax poetic about for a long time, but uh, we were wired to try to bucket things into being fact or fiction, but most things are actually preference. And so because we're wired for sort of this like, what's right or wrong, we wanna be able to like go Google something and get the immediate answer. But a lot of the stuff that, that people are asking about their finances, like should I buy this home? Should I buy a second home? Should I hire employees? Should I give people raises? Should I set up a bonus plan? It's like all these things are like, you could say yes to that and you could also say no and both answers could be correct. Mm -hmm. They're really preferences. And so anyhow, long story long on that, that's where the principles then step in to go, here's how we're gonna actually make decisions around these preferences that we have. Other, because the conventional sort of like 
fact-finding is not going to work for a preference. So, so you sort of start with uh, your clientele um, with the ideas, what's your preference, what's your goal? That's right. Yeah. I call them profit priorities. Sure. Basically, let's go through an exercise. And if people do this on their own, they, do, they don't do it. And I can circle back on why they don't do it. But sort of the exercise of profit priorities is go, what are the things that you want to fund? And there's a decent amount of coaching we need to do to set that up, which is like giving them examples. Because typically, if you just ask somebody, what, what's your goals for your business? They're going to go like, I want to get to seven figures, or I want to get to eight figures, or I want to make a million dollars. And you're like, okay, well, most small to medium-sized business owners are actually pretty purpose-driven. Like there's a reason why they started it. And so when you start digging into that, it's like, okay, well, I want to retire my spouse, or I want to help my parents out, or I want my kids to go to college. Uh, I want to you know, buy this dream home or second home. Or I want to buy more time for myself. That's actually probably the biggest one. It's like, I want to buy more time for myself. And so we can prioritize those and we can assign dollar values to it. What's it actually going to cost for you to, to have more time? Like, what do we need to buy for you to have more time? Like, is it a housekeeper or landscaping? Is it an administrative assistant? Like, what is it that's actually you having more time? And then we just actually chart that out. And, and then it's a matter of looking at based off where your business is at currently, how long is it going to take you to fund those priorities? And then from there, it becomes, well, how can we rapidly accelerate that? What are the things we can do to cut down that timeline considerably? Mm -hmm. People don't want to do that on their own because what they're actually doing is defining success. And by defining success, they're also defining failure. In other words, if I don't don't do this, then that means I'm failing. People don't like to do that. There's so many parallels to what Xander and I do in our practice. I think the most striking one, though, is, you know, people come to us and they want to know what the legal answer is to a question they have. And immediately there's a lot of reframing. You know, people say, you got to set client expectations, et cetera, et cetera. This is a fancy way for saying that. Sometimes there's not a right quote answer. If you have a goal, I'm going to help you get to that goal. And there might be 10 different paths to get there, but let's work as a team to find the right path for you and try to achieve that goal. Yeah, the question that I frequently get is, oh, do I have a claim? Can I sue them? Well, it's like, yeah, you can sue them, but is that really what you want? Do you really want to throw a bunch of cash at this in the hopes of getting this small result and knowing that this is going to take years down the line? It's a lot of trying to figure out what the actual purpose of that question is and then finding solutions to get to that point. Right. Yeah, that's a great, that, those are great examples. I mean, the fact, the fact is, yes, you could sue them, but <laughs> what are all your other priorities and do you want to allocate your resources to that? that objective and probably not the answer to can i sue them is usually yes but you probably don't want to <laughs> can you give us a little bit of background on what you were doing prior to going to nth degree and, and starting that up sure yeah so i was if you can imagine the cliche kid uh, growing up scheming on business ideas that was basically me me as a kid my parents trying to rein me in from doing things that were uh, too crazy and so i ended up getting an accounting degree and then also an information systems degree thinking those would be the broadest skill set to start a business not at all thinking I was going to start an accounting firm. And, and then I went in the exact opposite direction of being entrepreneurial. So I did a fellowship at the, uh, the board that writes all the accounting standards, so FAS, FASB, Financial Accounting Standards Board, GASB. They sort of create uh, what's called GAP. So I helped uh, write a, an, an accounting standard on derivatives and hedge, hedging activities, which most people sort of like gloss over at that point when they're like, I that sounds terrible. Especially when I say like the underpinning of this accounting standard is contemporaneous documentation. It's like, yeah, people want to 
like thro- throw up when they hear that. Yeah, we're we're um, trying to keep listeners here. Yeah, we're trying to keep <laughs> listeners. So, so that set me down a path for a while where I was like a, a, a derivatives expert and worked for one of the big global firms, Deloitte, moved back to Seattle where I'm from and was sort of the derivatives person and then had a little bit of a quarter life crisis. And I could present it in a couple of different ways. I could present it as being really strategic or I could give the honest answer, which was like, I just didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I'm the first person in my family to go to college, so I'm sort of like conf- conflicted as well with like, yeah. I'm making more money than my parents, yeah. and I'm like miserable doing this. So I helped a company get ready to go public, work for the now CFO of Roku and strategic finance, and, and th- then did some work in tax. So I have sort of a weird uh, background in the sense of most CPAs sort of have just done kind of one thing, and I've done the, the range of them which looks strategic because then at some point I realized like, hey, I'm pretty good at this accounting thing. I've got all these different experiences. Maybe there's an opportunity to do something different in the accounting space, which was kind of the basis for starting Nth Degree and sort of the idea of like, I can scratch this entrepreneurial itch and kind of leverage the, the skills that I've been not so strategically uh, compiling over several years. Okay, so before we started the podcast today, we brainstormed a couple things that we wanted to touch on and you gave some very compelling bullet <laughs> points that we didn't actually get into and I'm, I'm going to ask you about them now. Okay. Uh, you mentioned something called the two Oreo principle. What is that? Yeah. So a little bit, little bit of a backstory. So last year uh, uh, we moved into a new house and in the process of moving, I found out where my wife's snack cabinet was in the house. So she's really good at just like nibbling on something and then putting it away. Whereas if like, if I know where it is, like I'm eating all of the snacks, like that's just going <laughs> to yeah. happen. There's no like pacing it out. So, so we moved and, uh, and then I realized like near the end of the year, I'm like, how did I gain 10, 15, 15 pounds? And I was like, I don't think, did my exercise change very much? Did my diet change that much? And, uh, and then what I realized is like, oh, the snack cabinet, like I've basically been eating the equivalent of two Oreos at a day. So then I ran the numbers on these two Oreos. And if you eat every day two Oreos for a year single stuffed, which no one's doing single stuffed, but if you did, that's nearly, a, that's 11 pounds. And oh, wow. double stuffed is like 13 and a half, 14 pounds. So, so that's, so the two Oreo principle basically are these seemingly small things that you don't think about that actually add up to, to quite a bit. And so what happens in uh, in business and people's finances is that they add these little tiny expenses. It's like, oh, this software service thing that's you know, click funnels for $99 a month and this other thing. And the next thing you know, if you look over the course of the year, all these little small transactions a- actually add up to, to thousands of dollars. And each month they see it on as they're, when they're kind of looking through it because most business owners are like looking at their bank statement every or looking at their bank every day, like what's my bank balance right now? And they see like these little transactions and like, I'm not really using that, but that's like $10 a month or $50. Oh, EFAX is not that much. So yeah. it's okay. We only use it one, once a month, twice a month, but yeah, it's fine. So the, so the exercise is to go basically through your finances and look for like, what are the two Oreos that are actually eating away at my cash flow? And if you actually make a list, they probably add up to the equivalent of like the 10 or 15 pounds that I gained. So it's sort of like a, if I just said go through your financials and like look for these small expenses, no one wants to do that. But when it's like, look for the two Oreos, it's like, oh, that actually sounds slightly more fun. Maybe not fun, but more fun than like the the other side. Oh, I like that a lot. Yeah, no, that definitely applies. So often we see those tiny charges, not even just in business, but in personal lives. 
oh yeah, it's, it just costs a little bit more for an extra TV channel or what have you. Right. Um, so that definitely adds up. Okay, the second one I wanted to ask you about was unloading the dishwasher. Yeah, okay. Uh, so the, the dishwasher seems to be like a very polarizing topic amongst couples, specifically how to load mm. the dishwasher. It's like there's always yeah, somebody. Yeah, up. Yeah, it's like do you do – there's always – there's almost always one uh, of the two is very who's very passionate about like – these are the way the plates need to go. Well, because if there was two people who were very passionate, they wouldn't be together. Yeah, right, right, yeah. So so there's always somebody who's, like, very passionate about it. And then usually what happens is, like, you move in together, and then at some point in the first couple of weeks, there's, like, a passing conversation that's like, hey, you know, when you load the dishwasher, can you make sure that, like, you separate the forks into their own tray and the spoons into the other tray? And the other person's like, yeah, sure, whatever. And But they basically agreed to this and then inevitably like a week later the person is like hey what's up like i'm looking at the dishwasher and the yeah. forks and the spoons i thought we agreed that this is how we're doing it and then the other person's like well i don't think we really agreed we just sort of talked about it and like i didn't think it was that big of a deal right have you guys experienced oh, yeah. this yeah you're talking to, you're talking to two business partners <laughs> <laughs> so, so then this becomes this like whole fight that that happens over like well you agreed to this right and so there's all these like kind of passive agreements that we make on a day-to-day basis uh and the challenge is that once you agree to something it's hard to go back later and say like no i, I don't and so the distinguishment actually that, that i try to talk to to business owners about and like enrolling their team on is this concept of a line versus agree and so if i said to you right now can we agree on who we should vote for president it's like there's no way we're going to agree on that right anything political but even small so that's like an extreme but even if we picked like a, a much smaller a scale thing like where are we going to lunch can we all agree that we're going to go here and it's like uh, and when you say agree like i don't know if i want to agree to that like that feels like a big commitment but if you go can we align can we just like align on this that's just like for whatever reason agree carries all this weight of like well that has to be the way that i would do it Whereas a line is sort of like, well, that's not necessarily the way that I would do it, but I guess like I could move forward with that. Yeah, that, that's really strange. Yeah, it, it feels almost like I'm trying to do something for the team rather right. than for myself. Yeah. So yeah. my spouse just said to me like, hey, can we align on this? It's like, yeah, okay, we can. I can move forward with that. Because then I don't feel like I'm actually compromising to some degree. Like I feel like I'm being helpful mm-hmm. when I'm aligning. But if I'm agreeing, I'm like, well, hold on. Let me actually think about if this is the best way to do it. Yeah, it's a mindset shift from adversarial to uh, collaborative. Mm-hmm. You're, you're collaborating on a goal instead of what's less of you is more of me, and and you know it's more zero sum versus let's let's grow together. That's right, and so that fits into one of my principles about we need to optimize versus maximize. Yeah, tell so, us about that one. Yeah, so maximize. I have this whole thing about how I think that Fortune 500 principles just don't work for small to medium-sized companies. So most of the stuff you learn in business school is just not going to work in your Mm -hmm. small to medium-sized company. And that's because when you're leading a big Fortune 500 company, you're literally tasked with maximizing shareholder value. Like I think that's like your fiduciary responsibility. I defer to the attorneys on that. But something around maximizing shareholder value. And so maximize, like we need to get the most today, like right now. And you can do that when you're a big company because you've got people who are focused on like one task. It's like you have 
a huge profit and loss statement, and each person is responsible for maybe one line item on that, and maybe not even one line item, but like some small, and so they can focus on like really maximizing that, and they can negotiate the best contracts with vendors, because that's all they do, and also the scale that they're going to give their vendors, like is much, much bigger. You know, there's a multi-million dollar contracts, right? So you're able to, through volume and stuff, really, really maximize. But as a, as a business owner, and I know the, the three of us, we're all wearing like eight different hats. Like we're doing the technical work, that, but also in, in serving our clients, but we're also trying to figure out like who we're going to hire and what's our marketing approach and our sales and collections. Yeah. yeah. And oh yeah, the snacks in the front. Who's responsible for ordering the snacks? Like that beca- literally becomes this thing that you have to like think about. And so we're literally don't have the capacity to maximize everything. So we need to optimize, which is finding the most efficient path forward. Like what's our objective a year out? How do we find the most efficient path forward? And so business owners are often overpaying on their time, the most precious commodity, to try to maximize and thinking, you know, I like, I learned in business school, or I read this article that this is the way I'm supposed to be negotiating all this, and I need to get the most. And it's like, actually, you need to find the most. You need to find a way to align your vendors and with your partners and with your employees, so you can move forward with the most velocity, right. so that you're optimizing. And then at some point, you can flip to maximizing. But that's that's a whole different. Like, if you're trying to maximize for profit as a small business, you're probably also hindering your growth simultaneously. So I'm seeing a lot of. I mean. Basically, what you're talking about, Dan, is psychology in finance. I mean, you're you're giving some very high-level consulting human psychology tools for our listeners, and I love it. So the, the first one is is finding those two things that you just think, you know, the not maybe not two things, but the things within your business that are those two Oreos, right? And eliminating those because they look small, but they add up over time. The second thing is the mindset shift from you know agreement to alignment. And then this this thing that you're talking about now is also a, a psychological issue of, I've been taught this, I'm really smart, I, I've been trained, and it's maximize, maximize, maximize. But really, what you're saying is forget that. You're going to kill yourself trying to maximize. Why don't you optimize and, and work from an optimal approach? Um, I really like all those those tools. What's what's really interesting to me is the, the G, have you guys heard of the G.I. Joe bias? So we all have these cognitive biases that exist and you can you can study them and find out about about all the different biases that are out there like how we react to pricing right. you know there's a bunch of tools and techniques of how we react to pricing and so there's a whole pricing bias and the recency and, bias what recency you just bias. saw is what you yeah. think is going to happen again yeah and being anchored and so on and so forth and so you can go and learn out about all these biases and study them and all that but what's interesting is that what the GI Joe bias is is that even though you know that they exist, you still are subject to them. Don't know the biases exist, you're subject to them. Uh-huh. You go and learn all about them, guess what? You're still going to yeah, fall totally. prey to them, right. even though you know it. And so the more that you know about it, it does not actually, uh, you actually become more biased because you think that you're not going to be subject to these biases by virtue of knowing about them. Mm-hmm. And actually the data says that you're going to be just as victim to it. One of the things that we know you're an, an expert at, or you know, an uh, in, in, in ASAT, Dan, is recession proofing, and it's a very obviously a valuable topic. And I think it's going to be a timely topic. So tell us about that. What what tips do you have for our listeners about recession recession proofing their business? So there's some quick wins that you can do, and automatically, whenever the topic of recession comes up, I think people get it's it's also a polarizing thing because there's so much political stuff surrounding it. But whether it's going to happen soon, it's going to happen eventually. Mm-hmm. 
just because it always does. There's there's cycles and it's it's not avoidable. So ultimately, I think about recession proofing. I advocate to my my clients to do it because you can massively win if you're prepared for a recession uh, because most of your competitors are not. And so if you're prepared for it, then you're in a position to now buy things on a discount. Mm -hmm. And those discounts might be other businesses. They might be employees that you couldn't have other, otherwise hired. There might be supplies or softwares that you're able to buy because you've got the resources that, that you've sort of prepared yourself for that. So one of the easiest quick wins is just go get a line of credit. Oftentimes, folks go and, and get, get a line of credit when things are bad. It uh, turns out that banks don't like to lend money to someone when they actually need it. Yeah. Uh, weird. They want to make sure that you can pay them, pay them back. So uh, people don't like to give out money to someone who they don't think they're going to get paid back from. So now is the prudent time. And there's some, still some streamlined programs out there for a couple, thousand, couple hundred thousand dollar line of credit that usually uh, doesn't require you to like turn in annual financial statements for at least the first couple of years. So, so there's some good programs out there right now. And I would say jump on that. Probably if you don't need it, just have it in place because when things start to tighten up, it's going to be harder to access that. We've had other guests on this podcast say the same thing. Banks don't like to lend to you when, when uh, you actually need the money. So think about that now. Yeah, weird paradigm that, that would be the case. <laughs> weird reality, uh, yeah. The other thing that's an easy, easier thing to do is put together what I call a plus minus list, which are basically what are the things you want to add when they're on discount and what are the things that you want to subtract either because you have to or because you want to replace them with something new. So just as an example on the things you might want to add. So, you know, as you're as you're growing a business, the reality is, is that over time, like you may need to up level your your team. So the people when you're a startup that you can hire when you're like super cost conscious may not be the people that as you're growing are still going to make sense. And so when other top talent comes available, it may make sense for you to to go out and acquire those. And that might, I don't mean to like sound cold hearted, but to some degree, if you can up level your team significantly uh, for the same cost, it's worth thinking about that. The same with maybe the space that you're renting, be able to up level because of the rates have gone down. Also putting together the list of stuff that that you would get rid of first if your financials were to go sideways. So oftentimes uh, when things start slowing down, people are too late to respond. And then it becomes a very emotional attachment to those things. It's like trying to choose between your like favorite kids in that moment. And so part of like sort of this session proofing idea is like, let's just get the list of in, in order of what are the things we would get rid of first to last. And let's just have that ready in the event that we have to execute on it. So I think, yeah, I think of business as, as sort of a full contact sport and, and it's, a, it's a professional sport. You're being paid, hopefully, to do it and you're paying people to do it. And so part of this like plus minus list, getting a line of credit in place are things that you want to do. Uh, if you were playing a game, you would, you would have a, you'd have a plan. You'd practice. You would drop your plays before you go out on the field yeah, totally. if you want a, a, bit, a better chance of winning. And so to some degree, building out this plus minus list is like at some point you got to really play the game. Right now it might be easy, but when it gets harder, when the competition gets better, we got to prepare even more. So having that plus minus list is a, is a good way to do that. They talk about no matter how prepared you are, hitting that last putt at the Masters is very difficult. And so if you haven't, you know, you know, uh, practiced your putting one million times before that putt, then you're going to be in a world of a world of hurt, right? So, and that can be analogized to, to so many other sports. So, are you saying that literally preparing a list today for like 
if in case the recession break glass and you pull the pull the list out or are you saying to prepare the list today and and look and say you know what actually i could cut this person it's a both mm. in this case so i've got this six week live course where i help people go through this process of becoming kind of recession proof right and so again that may happen now or that may happen two years from now the process of going through and identifying your plus minus list also becomes this sort of like oh you know what these are team members or resources that are dragging us down mm -hmm. and I've been ignoring it because the, back to the thing I said about uh, once you define success you're also defining failure right uh, this plus minus list sort of <laughs> brings that out as well where you're going like yeah I would I would cut this person right away if the finances got tight and you're like hold on you would cut this person right, right away? away wow yeah that that's yeah. a pretty let's like pause and think about that for a second that's a pretty strong <laughs> comment to make that you would why would you cut this person right away? well their performance isn't great you know on and on it's like okay well why are they here now so we get attached to things so a common question that i get asked from folks is just by way of analogy is around uh Turn, they're about to buy us another home and they're like, should I turn my current home into a rental property? And the question actually is, well, would you buy the, that current home that you have now and turn it into a rental property? It's like, and if the answer is no, then you should sell that home. Right. You're just considering turning it into a rental property because it's easy, you already own it, mm -hmm. and you've liked the idea of having rental properties. Like a lot of most people are like, someday I'd like to have some rental properties because I heard it's like a good tax strategy or passive income. And so then they back into having these rental properties that aren't actually good right. rental properties or right. things yeah. that they want to have. And so the same thing is true with, with your team and other resources that you have, which you're like, would you hire this person today for what they're doing? If the answer is no, then what are you going to do about it? Right. And I'm not trying to sound cold hearted. Like right. I'm about purpose driven entrepreneurs who are trying to fund their priorities and have more time and have better experiences. And that part of that becomes like really defining their culture and getting their team on board and aligning. And so I'm not just well, like cutting expenses, but at the same point, you're doing a disservice to everybody if you would like fire this person right away. Sure. And I think there's some, you know, it does sort of sound, it sounds cold hearted, but it really isn't. And you, like you said, business is a full contact sport, but also, you know, there's some soft pieces of that too. If somebody isn't a performer, they're probably not happy with where they're at. There's probably a better fit for them in this universe anyway. I mean, there's lots of ways to spin that too, but, and if you want to prepare for a recession, maybe it means cutting dead weight today. So you have the cash for tomorrow. Yeah, and I started my business during the last recession, and I think maybe you might have as well, at least near the end. Yeah, right. And magically, both of our firms are doing really, really well. Yeah. And that's because actually we went into it being able to like take massive, ma massive risks, and uh, we could compete against other people because we didn't have a. Lot, we're still we were younger. We didn't have a lot of expenses. I think you maybe had one kid at the, that point. I didn't have any kids. Yeah. Um, but we were, in a, we were in a position where we could take on clients and do things differently than our competitors who were maybe heavily bloated with expenses and they hadn't built out their plus minus list, all that sort of stuff. So we could be really nimble and, uh, and they couldn't. Right. And so as your business grows, you still need to find a way to, 
to be really nimble and jump on these opportunities because you could go, we went from zero to where we're at now, but you could go from seven figures to eight figures during a recession because you're jumping on all these opportunities. You're buying these other practices. You're bringing on top performers. Right. You're, uh, you're able to make new offers to clients and not seem desperate because people don't like to buy from someone when they're desperate. Right. Like you're able to do all these things that your competitors can't. So I think that's a podcast for another time, Start t- starting a, a professional practice. We should, we should do that because, yes, nth degree and apex loss sort of grew out of the last 2008 through 11, you know, downturns. Um, but just real quick, I mean, so nth degree is still here today. You guys are kicking butt um, and doing really great work. Do you think that between a combination of your skills and talents and luck, what's the breakdown for your success? That's a good, that's, uh, yeah, that's a good question. And... I think that there's always a certain amount of luck being in the you know, right place, right time. And I, what, what, uh, what I've noticed is that I have the most success when I'm playing my, when I'm playing my game. And, and this goes back to like all the cliche conventional finance stuff and all the things you learn in business. And I went to a Jesuit uh, college where we learn about uh, everyone's equal and the morality and ethics and, and I certainly agree with all that, um, but it shapes you in a different in a different way. And so you end up going into the uh, to the business world, trying to follow what you were told is the right way, mm-hmm. and and then sort of realize that uh, that's not that's not like my authentic self. Like that's not the way that I want to play this game of business. And if you think about it as a sport, you're like, and you look at it, use any analogy could be. Let's just go with football. And you think about like certain players, they have a very defined, very specific way that they play. Mm-hmm. And sure. they show up in their attitude and demeanor. And that's how they become you know, the best at what they're doing. And the same thing is true, I think, in business of really figuring out what's your style yeah. and how can you play it consistently. And whenever I do that, those are the periods when I have the most amount of success. When I start trying to do all the stuff that I was told I have to do and I'm supposed to do or should do, all those things end up leading me to not be very content in the work that I'm doing. Yeah. And I start avoiding a bunch of stuff and it just becomes, it ends up hindering our growth. So a certain amount of luck, right time, right place, a certain amount of hustle. And I think ultimately trying to consistently play my game. No, that makes sense. I, I think Russell Wilson's too short, right? We're here in, in Seattle and he's a Super Bowl winning quarterback. Uh, he's very different than Tom Brady, although Tom Brady everybody said that he wasn't going to be a winner either, right? The dude's 100 years old, still playing football. So, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Playing your game your way can still make everything happen. And if you haven't read uh, Moneyball about the the Oakland A's and their winning ways too, I mean, that's another great example. So, um, excellent. Really, really good stuff, Dan. I think the recession-proofing tips for the listeners out there, including getting that line of credit right now today while things are good, and the plus-minus list are fantastic tips. Um, I've really enjoyed having you, so thank you for coming in. Dan, thank you so much for being here. If people want to find you in the future, where where do they look? Yeah, so they can just go to our website, uh, www.nthdegreecpas.com. And I do have, a, I guess, a couple of uh, special offers for the listeners as well, where they can go to our website slash recession proof, or then go slash profit priority. And there's some free trainings and resources if they want to learn more about some of the things we talked about. Uh, and Peter, if people want to find more about Apex Law, where do they go? Alexander. Uh, they can go to apexlg.com or they can contact us at contact at apexlg.com. Dan, thanks so much for being here. And thank you to our listeners. We'll see you next time.
I'm Alexander Theo Harris. And I'm Peter Smith. Thanks for listening.